0: This morning, John chapter number 1, verse 14. John 1, verse number 14. Very familiar verse. We're going to spend our time right here in verse number 14. Let's ask for the Lord's help, of course, as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the things that cause us joy today. We can go through and mark them as the salvation we have, the hope and peace that we have, the forgiveness we have, mercy and grace that we have. But all of this is because of a Savior we have that you have given to us, your own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this. Thank you for this reminder, especially today. This holiday season, we set aside to remember his birth it's because, Lord, we need to remember it. We set it on our calendar, and whether it was actually this, uh, this December 25th or not, really is not an issue to us. It's the fact that we celebrate a Savior who has come, and this is a good time to do that. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. May your, your praise just uh, echo in our hearts today especially as we spend time in your word, draw our attention to the great thing you have done and reinforce and, and even cause to get excited that joy that's within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This verse says, verse 14 of John chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. A couple of months ago, as you know, I spent a uh, little time in Brazil. And uh, you also recall I told you the story of uh, riding with Al Piercebacher in his car as he took me to uh, their residence up on a mountain in Brazil. And uh, I wasn't too aware of how we were climbing in elevation. It was, my concern was more with the guardrails and things as we'd go around corners. Uh, but slowly, as we wound up and down that road, we were going higher and higher and higher. And we came around one corner. It was, it was such that we were turning to the, to the right. And just as he's turning around the corner, there's, it's just along a, a wall of rock. And off the other side was this drop-off. And as he came around, there was a burnt-out car sitting right in our lane. Just sitting there. Been there for some time. So he knew about it, so he could whiz right past it. I said, why do they leave that there? If anyone coming around that corner wouldn't know it's there. There it is instantly. This part. He says, well, when somebody gets around to it, they are just push it off the side of the cliff. But until then, it just stays there. Uh, Well, those were the distractions I had as we were going up and down this road. So I didn't notice the heights that we had reached. And finally, he reached a a place. He says, I want to show you something. And we got out of the car, and there were TV antenna and radio antenna and and a giant stone building uh, in front of us. And we got out of the car at the little parking area, and, and he walked along this path. And so I followed behind him along this little path that went up alongside the building and around the back. And just as we turned around the back, I realized that was the edge of one of the highest places in that vicinity. And we were standing at the very top. There's no railings there either. And you can see, and you can see for miles and miles, you can see that windy road that we had come up, and and it was a beautiful sight, but an intimidating one. But a beautiful sight to have reached such a high spot. I didn't even know we had reached that high. This morning, the commentary I read one along the way mentioned that the first 13 verses of John's Gospel is like that climb. We've been going up. We've been going up. We've been going up to a point. A point that verse number 14 brings to our attention. It's like the great climax of all that he wanted to say. This is what he's been bringing us to. If you're in music, it's the crescendo has reached its place here. The climb is up the mountain and here is the view is magnificent. For the Word became flesh. What a moment in history that is. What a tremendous thing. He's been leading us to understand that. And that's where we are. We've been studying the Word. We've been looking at the deity of Jesus Christ. The baby that's born in a manger is God. We've been working our way through chapter 1 and looking at that as we go. And that's familiar to us. It's stated so clearly in this passage. It's stated so clearly in in Scripture that Jesus is God. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next one? The Mighty God. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Then the next verse, which we know as well, but it's not quite as familiar. It all speaks of him as God and his, his rule. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Who can accomplish that? Only God can. And it says, For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This fact that He is God is so firmly established in this gospel. Verse 1 and 2 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And His work, we have seen, His work in creation shows He's God as well says in verse 3, for all things came into being through Him. All things, right? All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The next two verses speaks of light and life. And that's who He is. And that's what He possesses. For in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. We speak of, of who Jesus Christ is, his identity, his work, what he is, what he possesses. All these things say, he is God, he is God, he is God. It's just drumming that message to us. That's why we thought last week, it was an amazing thing to see how the darkness did not comprehend it. And into verse 9 and 11, that there was a true light which comes into the world. Enlightening every man, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came unto his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. There were those who rejected him. Isn't that amazing to you? They rejected him. He's God. They rejected Him. Thankfully, that's not the whole world, right? That's not everyone. For the next verse says, but as many as received Him. Verse number 12. So there are those who receive, right? There are those who reject. And there's those who receive. Do you realize you're one or the other? You are either one who has rejected Him or received Him. Say, well... Pastor, I don't know if reject is the right word. That's kind of a strong word to say I rejected him. I really didn't reject him. I just, I didn't come around to receiving him. Well, if you think that through, what what has it, what is it that you have received? I mean, what is the center of the things you believe and the things you live for? Is it for Pleasure? You choose pleasure over him. Guess who you've just rejected? Maybe it's just, well, you know, I try to live a good life and I'll just do it the way I I think I should. You're rejecting the only way, the only truth, the only life, if you make up your own. More times than not, we think it's such a minor thing to say, I don't need to choose Christ. When scripture says it's a major thing. It leaves us in one position or another. If we have not received him, then we have chosen to reject him. You're one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no soft place between those to say, well, I guess you're still okay. Rejecting is a strong thing. And we don't want to be included in that group. There are those who have rejected him. Today, we move on to verse number 14. We take another look at Jesus Christ. I want you to see once again that He indeed is God. And He has done something for us that no one else can or will do. Here's the fact. As we start off again, as I've done each week, we look at the truth of His deity. It starts with the Word. And the Word Became flesh. The Word. We've seen that in the first couple of verses, right? The Word. We've identified the Word as God in the nature of who He is. That He is from God. That He was with God. That He is God. We've seen those verses. And verse 14 is a continuation of that very thought. That expression of who He is. The Word. It begins, right? Right? The Word. Now, there's some aspects in this verse that show us more about the Word. We're not talking here about a great philosopher, or a great philanthropist, or a prophet, or a reformer. Though I think, in some ways, Jesus would be the epitome of everything that we would mention there. But we're talking about God, (laughs) We're talking about God. It's evident in the way he described him. John said, look at verse 14, right in the middle, we saw his glory. Isn't that quite a phrase? We saw his glory. What did the disciples see? Well, they weren't around when he was born. Some of them were younger than him, I believe, maybe. Some might have been a little bit older. But as we know in the gospel records, they didn't come to him until his ministry. And so we don't have them present at the birth of Christ. But what's his glory evident on those days? What were the angels saying to the shepherds? What was the shepherds spreading throughout the land? What did the wise men do, as we call them wise men, as they came and they, they bowed down before him? did they acknowledge the glory of that child? We have that in his birth. What about his baptism? Was there evidence of his glory at his baptism? Remember, he came up out of the water, and a dove came out of heaven. And who was the dove? The Holy Spirit. Came and descended upon him, and a voice spoke. Remember? Had to have been a fascinating moment. This is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased. How about at this transfiguration? You remember that recorded in Scripture? James and, and Peter and John were coming up with Jesus up onto the mountain, and there Jesus was transfigured before them. He, he turned into the brightness of glory, and there was Elijah and there was Moses, and they were talking, and it was overwhelming. The whole scene of the glory of Christ. These men, these disciples, couldn't stop talking about that. Years later, it started to appear in their letters as well. Peter talks about it in his letter. John talks about it in his letter. They talk about this great transfiguration. we got a glimpse of his glory. What about the resurrection? When Jesus appeared to them in the upper room. Now, you think that was just a boring moment? All of a sudden, there he was, the one that they had seen die. He's standing before them very much alive. It says they worshipped him. What about at his ascension, when they see him lift off the ground and ascend up into heaven? Is that a moment when they get a glimpse of the great glory of their Savior? How about during the miracles? When he'd do healings of, of death, being able to hear, and blind, being able to see, and dead, rising again. All these great glimpses. There was a day when he walked on the water. When he got into the boat, they were overwhelmed with who he was. And then he turned, and he calmed the sea. And do you know what they did? They fell at his feet and worshipped him. Calms a storm. So many times he, he did things that others said. Well, only God can do that. It's funny they would say that, but they didn't acknowledge who did it. There was a soldier at the cross, remember? A soldier who declared something very profound. Surely this must be the Son of God. I wonder... At times, my imagination does this. What would he have said if he was there when that tomb opened up and he saw a risen Savior? Just a crucifixion impressed him that he must be the Son of God. Now John records in chapter 17 a prayer of Jesus just before the crucifixion and he says, Now Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory of which I had with you before the world was. In other words, the disciples did see his glory. They got glimpses of it, glimpses of it, glimpses of it. I think they would have been totally overwhelmed if they got the full view. Moses couldn't handle that when he asked to see God, right? God had to hide him, cover him with his hand, walk past him, and give him just a glimpse of the back as he went. Because too much would overwhelm a man, I'm sure. I think of John especially, the writer of this book. John who had seen him. John who had seen the transfiguration. John who had seen him after his resurrection. John in the book of Revelation is there on the Isle of Patmos. And all of a sudden he hears a voice and he turns around and there's Jesus Christ in front of him. And he fell over like a dead man. John who was so familiar with him was overwhelmed with his glory. So as he's writing these words, get a touch of what he's saying here. We saw his glory. Who else could that be? But God. They were overwhelmed with that. They were overwhelmed as well in verse 14 it says of his uniqueness. He is the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten of the Father. Now, we talk about his birth. His birth when he took on flesh here. But this is speaking of a very unique relationship. And and someday we'll get into all the conversation that needs to be said about this. But the expression is that there was a relationship here between Jesus Christ and his father, a unique one. it's, It's a mystery to some degree because it speaks of a trinity and the fellowship within the trinity. And we understand parts and pieces, but how it all works is beyond our mind. It's just a fact that when John records that phrase, it's never used of anyone else but Jesus. The only begotten. The only begotten. The only begotten. It's only Jesus. No one else had claim to this title. No one else had this unique kind of relationship with the Father. Eternally existing alongside Him. He told us that in verse number 1. But this is a picture of his uniqueness. Who else could that be but God? Speaks of his character as well in verse 14. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full. You got a picture of full in your mind? We're not talking three quarters of the way in a glass. We're not talking about nine tenths of a glass. We're talking full is complete. When we talk about His character, grace, that speaks of His, his, his character, His attribute, everything about Him is, is, speaks of grace. He's full. We speak of kindness. We speak of gifts. We speak of giving. Even our word joy is somewhat related to that in a family of words in the Greek. His grace. Everything about Him. His kindness is sacrificial, giving grace to the fullest measure all the time. And still, fully true, right? Full of truth in every fact. Not one ounce of falsehood. Not one thing that is questionable. He's true. He's true. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. Who else could that be? But God himself. His character even speaks of who He is. Dominated, if you will, by by truth. Dominated by grace. Everything about Him says that. This is a great phrase. It's in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness of deity to dwell in Him. That's a powerful little phrase. What's that mean? Does that mean God dumped it in him? No, that doesn't mean that at all. That means that, that. let me give you a concept of words, because we're going to use them later. When we use the word dwell, for all the fullness to dwell in him, to dwell, you can use it in the concept of a tent. You can dwell in a tent, but that's probably not your permanent home, Right? You wouldn't want it to be that way. It's a temporary fixture. It's meant to come down. It's just a, an arrangement for the moment. If you say, I dwell in a house, well, that sounds a little more permanent, doesn't it? You've got a house. You've got a structure. You've got a mailbox. You've got all those things that says, this is, this is more permanent along that line. But we know how we sell houses and move and things of that nature. So the idea of permanence isn't always with a house. But in the Greek, they do something very interesting. When they want to speak of a permanent dwelling, they put a little preposition in front of it. It's just K-A-T-A. We say kata in front of oikos, which is the word for house. Kata oikos. What's that? I mean, I live here and I'm never moving again. If somebody says that when they come into your front door, expect them to stay forever. Alright? That is the term for permanence. You can't get a stronger term for permanence than that. Guess what it says right here in this text? When it's speaking of all the fullness to dwell in him, is that like a tent, a house, or a permanent arrangement? Take like a wild guess. You know it's the last one. That's what it speaks of him. He in other words, the the fullness of God never leaves. Grace and truth are always full. The deity is always there. It's the strongest term for permanence you can lay out before it. This is God we're speaking of here. He does not change. He does not diminish. He does not become less God somehow. He's permanently God. Got the words? Those are important. Very important for what we're looking at here because John is trying to amplify something that's Bigger than us. The Word. The Word is God. Always is God. Here's two things I, I noticed. Well, one thing, but it uses two passages. In verse number 1 and verse number 14, one of the commentators was really clever, and he set these things side by side. He says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, that's his deity, eternal deity, And in verse 14, "...and the Word became flesh." There's this humanity. Verse number 1, "...and the Word was with God." Shows Him with God. And verse number 14, "...and He dwelt among us." He's with God, and He came to be with us. In verse number 1, "...and the Word was God." That's His person. He's God." And here in verse number 14, and he's full of grace and truth. That's God's character. So you set these two side by side and you have eternal deity in humanity. You have him with God and then with man. You see, he is God in person and God in character. None of that changed when he came down among us. None of that changed. So there's his glory. There's his uniqueness. There's his character, all that says to us this morning is he is God he is God John has concluded that in this way, he said we beheld that we saw that he was God the rest of the world rejected we saw we looked, we inspected we had keen interest in this so we looked it over you know that's kind of a fascinating thing for all the time they spent with Him, they could stand later and look back on it and say, in every aspect, in every moment, in every way, He showed us He was God. Do people know some things about you that aren't so pleasant? The disciples never had that with Jesus. He's God. In every way, in every action, in every response, in every moment, He is God. They record that. Because they watched intentively, they they inspected carefully. I read one commentary that said that Jesus ceased to be the Word when He took on flesh. That is wrong. He did not cease to be God at any time. It's always God. That deity is important for us to mark here in verse 14. For that's what gives it such the punch that it has here. That God, the Word, became flesh. He became flesh. He came to be with us. To dwell with us. Among us, the text says. He took on flesh. He became flesh. That's kind of an interesting phrase, right? Now, if If you want to think through this logically, he became flesh. Just by the nature of saying that, he became flesh assumes pre-existence. I'll tell you how that works. The the idea of becoming is to take on the appearance of something, to take on the characteristics of something, to take on, All right, It's got somewhat of a concept like putting something on, like clothing. For example, putting on socks this morning pre-assumed... That you had legs. Right? Putting on flesh assumes something, doesn't it? Pre existence. For him to become flesh, he had to exist prior to that, and we know that's true anyway. But even the nature of that word says it again. He took on our appearance. Now, I'm not talking about a phantom, I'm not talking about some sort of a shadow, but as a true man. He took on flesh to dwell among us. The gospel narrative is so clear all the way through that he knew hunger. He knew tears. He knew pain. He knew death. He knew sorrow. Go on and on. He expressed everything a man can express in those things. But it was necessary for him to become a man if he was going to live with men. And it says so clearly here, he came to dwell among us. Listen again to what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. He says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's quite a thing to say. This is what he's done for you. He, the great God who created all these things, put on his creation. Put on flesh to dwell among us. The word to dwell is That first one I gave you earlier, the word for tent. He tented among us. That's a strange way to say it. He tented among us. You know what that suggests? The whole time that he came, he knew he wasn't here permanently. He came down in the flesh to dwell among us. He had a job to do. He dwelt among us. Tabernacled is another word you might have here. He dwelt, he encamped next to us and in... The, the picture is kind of neat, because if you camp among people, then you're there with them. Kind of like family or, or friends that spend time together, the opportunity of becoming familiar with each other, to be acquainted with him, uh, so that we know who he really is. Every one of the disciples could say, yes, he was a man. Because they had tented with him. They had dwelt with him. I'm so thankful he did that. I'll tell you a couple of things I was thinking as I, I saw that phrase, he tempted. Now, I'm going to make up some verbs here, okay? Just so you know. Uh, it doesn't say he housed here, all right? Like a permanent dwelling. It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say he mansioned here. If we he mansioned here, we would liken it to the home of the rich. It doesn't say he palaced here like the dwelling of a monarch. But he tented here, is the word. He reached down, to the very, reached down to the very basic of dwellings, something that could be easily moved, something that can be torn down, something that's very frail, and yet it's something that's among people. The lowest of people. I've never been to London, but I've heard and I've seen pictures that if you approach the palace where the queen actually lives, there are guards outside. Now, I have been to Washington, D.C., and I've walked up to that fence, and I've looked across the yard, and I could see the White House there, and I saw the guards. They do have them. But there are guards there for a reason. I've seen homes in very wealthy neighborhoods. Where they've had their their fences across the driveway and entrances is limited. Only people with certain privileges get into places like that. Who can approach a tent? Isn't that nice to hear? He came and tented among us. I think that's what makes my Savior so special. We can approach him. We can approach him. Oh, I believe he, he was worthy of the mansions. <laughs> He's worthy of the palaces. I know all that's true. But he chose the tent so we could approach him. The disciples one time tried to be his bodyguard. They were trying to keep children away from him. And remember what he said? Let the children come. Aren't you glad we have a Savior like that? Who invites us to come to him. See, when we have a need and we must seek his help, we can approach that throne boldly, Scripture says, and find help in the time of need. We have an approachable Savior because he came to dwell among us. What a precious concept this is. John is is writing this, but let me show you his, his other passage. First John, I've done this several times, but let's go over there again. 1 John chapter number 1. 1 John. Way in the back of your, your Bibles. Look at these words. The first couple of verses of 1 John. Now, John, I, I want you to know as he starts to write here, he's not babbling. Right? He's not just you know finding words and babbling on and on. He's very precise. Very precise at what he's saying here in these three verses. He says, What was from the beginning... What we have heard. Now, that word heard there, we call it in the Greek the perfect tense. It's kind of the idea. We heard it and it's still something we can hear, if you will. Kind of like the, the, the ring that follows, the echo that remains, uh, the fact that I never forget it. I heard it and it just sticks with me. He uses that here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we heard it then, we, that lingers today. Which we have seen. And this word for seeing is the idea of perceiving something. the understood. He says, we understood and it's still something we understand. We've seen with our eyes and what we have looked at. Now this is interesting because he changes the tense all of a sudden. And I thought, that's very curious, John. What are you saying? He says, we looked at him. We looked at him with attention. We examined him carefully. And that was a historical past tense. We had that chance. We saw him. And we touched him. Also of that same nature. At one point in one time, we could touch him with our own hands. But what's suggested in both of those last words, we looked at him and touched him, that he's not here any longer for us to do that. We touched him and we looked at him back then, the word of life, that life was manifested. We've seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And we have seen and we have heard and we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Our deed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, he could be seen, he could be heard, he could be looked at, he could be touched. He came to dwell among them. And John was so impressed with that. And I could picture him saying, wait a minute, this is the God who hears me. And I could hear Him. This is the God who sees me. And I could see Him. This is the God who looks at me. And I could look at Him. This is the God who has touched me. And I touched Him too. How exciting that sounds. This is John's testimony. He says, now these things I have seen, I've heard, I've looked at, and I've touched. But you know what? Of all those things, 60 years later when John writes, he says, there are things that just don't linger. I'm not here anymore where I could examine him and verify him. I'm not in that same place where, where I can and touch him and, and know that feel any longer. But there are two things that he left. That still ringer true. And so you and I are not at a disadvantage because we didn't see and touch him. He says, to hear him and perceive him lingers. To hear him and perceive him lingers. And that's important for us in our faith because Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing. Aren't you glad that message is still there? It's still being proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He has made it so that that will not diminish. We can hear and we can understand and we can respond by faith. See, John says, we beheld him. In all that he is, we beheld him. And the rest of the world rejected him. But we saw him and he dwelt with us. He dwelt with us. He came to be with us. And there's something also kind of neat in these words. This phrase, and he dwelt among us. This is also something that's fascinated me, and I want to develop it a little bit more. But in it, it means encamped. And it's used five times in Scripture, and I looked at all five. They're always in reference to something God does for his own. And it always seems to be in the neighborhood of protection. I thought, what a curious idea this is. Protection? What do you mean?
1: Well, here's what I
0: think. Psalm 34, 6 and 7. The poor man cries. And the Lord hears and rescues him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. And the next time you're going to see such a phrase is in the book of Revelation. Look at the context. Here's one. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell, there's that word, encamps, encamps in, in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he is only a short time. Revelation 13:6: He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme His name and his tabernacle. that is, those who dwell in heaven. Satan and the Antichrist do all they can to blast God's people. But God encamps around them. Do you like that? It's a neat picture. Revelation 21.3 I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Ooh, that gives me goosebumps. And then it said one more time, Revelation seven fifteen. I like this. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. are those precious words? There's an idea of protection in all this. And I'm not sure how to develop that in my mind, but I really want to. Jesus came down among His disciples and among His own, and He also came here To give up a protection. He encamped among them. Who else would you like camping in your midst? But God himself. Oh, it's a great picture.
1: Someday we'll develop
0: that one. But here's what we see. He came down to be with us. It says, he came to dwell among us. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. That word became flesh. Why? Why? Why did he feel this was necessary? We have the testimony of his glory in creation. We have the testimony of his glory in his word. Why did he take the step to come and dwell among us? Well, if you sum it up in the simplest portion, portion, it would be so that he can make it possible for us to dwell with him. So that we can dwell with him. We couldn't otherwise. But John was telling us in that first epistle there, I read it to you, but he said, we have, we have seen, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and that life was manifested, and we have seen, and we testify, and proclaim to you, the eternal life, which was at the Father, and manifested to us. We proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship." He says, with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. You can have fellowship with Him because He came to dwell among us. That's why He came. So that we could have fellowship with God. Let me say it real simple Jesus Christ, the one who was born, is God. He desires a relationship with you, a fellowship with Him and with the Father. He gives eternal life, because He is life. He came down to this earth. He took on humanity. He put on our flesh. He dwelt among us, so that we, by faith in Him, can dwell with Him forever. That's a simple picture. But there are those who reject that message, because they reject Him. There are those who receive that message, Because they receive him. You are one or the other. You are one or the other. There is no other Savior. If you're waiting for one to pop up, it's not going to happen. There's no other Savior. No one else could die for your sins and rise again to ensure that you have eternal life. No one else can or will do that for you. But Jesus has. The Bible brings it all down to this one thing. Believe On the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And I bring that before you again this morning. That's the attention I want you to have. Even as we've talked about who he is, what he's done, what's your response? Do you believe that? Have you received him? If not, you have rejected him. And I hope that's not your case. But today is the day for you to decide. Even as we go into prayer, talk to him about your relationship. Talk to him with this position you're taking. Do you believe or have you rejected? I'd like to, personally as a pastor, I'd like to know that everyone in this room knows him as Savior. I'd love to know that that was true. I hope that that is true. But I'm also very conscious of the fact that if you're not one who has received him, you're one who has rejected him. And that's the message that we have to take into serious consideration. Right? Right? Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, since you know every single heart in this room this morning, you know whether or not they have received you and this message of Christ, or whether they have rejected it. And I pray, Lord, that if there might be some among us who have never received Jesus Christ as Savior, may today be the day they realize they need Him, and they must come to Him by faith there's no negotiations here Lord there's nothing we can bring, no way we can earn it, no way we can somehow convince you by our own doing, our own person, anything about any promise we could make it's only on Christ we can rest, where there is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ there's only one name given among men whereby man can be saved it 's the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray Lord that every Single person in this room this morning knows that. And they have received Christ as Savior. But Lord, if there's some who haven't, do your work in their heart. Help them to see and understand and respond by faith to what you have done. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. As we reflect upon this season right now, this this time when we set aside to remember the birth of our Savior. We ought to be the most joyful people on this planet. Knowing that he's come to do this for us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for what you have done for us. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.